what's up, Crypt Nation? Bryce Paul and the Notorious Pizza Mind coming at you per usual from the sunny and 70 San Diego. All right, so if you haven't heard yet, Pete's and I just finished writing a 290-page book called Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. And we did this so that anyone anywhere in the world can learn about really how cryptocurrency and blockchain technology are putting the power back in the hands of the people. And really, we wrote this to equip the masses with the tools to profit from this revolution. So whether you invest in crypto or something else, the point is that you need to escape inflation, which is a hidden tax on your savings by investing in your future. And we think that crypto is really the hottest market, which has the most upside potential. And we are so confident that Crypto Revolution is the perfect starting point, whether you're the crypto curious or the seasoned investor just looking to learn about the world's newest asset class. All right. The best part is we're giving it away literally for free. Okay? For free. All we ask is you pay for shipping uh, just to help offset the cost of the book. We're literally making zero dollars on this and are just doing it to give back to our amazing community of listeners. All right. So go to CryptoRevolution.com today and get your free copy. All right, what is up? Good citizens of Crypt Nation, it is your loving and dutiful hosts, Bryce Paul and the Notorious Pizza Mind. Hey man, how's it going? It seems like it's been a little while since we've actually recorded a podcast. We've been so busy with the Crypto 2020 Summit, but uh, we had to stop what we were doing, throw everything down because Mr. Edward Woodford came to town and we just had to pick this guy's brain because like us his ears are where the next generation of cryptocurrency is going to be and we really just needed to touch base and sync up and see what's going on yeah and one of the cool things about edward uh is not only is he the founder and the ceo of this massive crypto company called seed cx he's also uh, a forbes 30 under 30 uh, extraordinaire edward welcome to the show yeah, thanks for having me, and I appreciate the uh, the kind introduction. <laughs> Absolutely, we just get hyped up, and we like to get Crypt Nation hyped up. Uh, it's just just one of those things that we do. So, Edward, um, you know, before we get into your background or any of that kind of stuff, you know, we we want to start with a definition of a digital asset. In your yeah. mind, what is a digital asset? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of a digital asset, in my mind, is that it can essentially be anything. Um, in a sense, it's an asset that is tokenized or digitalized. Um, and obviously, um, we started off with cryptographic assets such as Bitcoin um, or Ethereum. But I think you're going to start to see um, some real world assets t- start to be tokenized. And obviously, a lot of talk has gone on about maybe tokenized gold. Um, that's one of the big things that's been spoken about or tokenized securities. Um, what does that mean when something's tokenized? Yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes people say tokenized just to create a little bit of froth around around something. And obviously, this is still an emerging uh, an emerging space. So the concept of what tokenization means, I think, is also going to change. But at kind of a high level, I think the way that we describe tokenization or digitalization is putting an asset or a, a, an ownership um, onto a blockchain, whereby you can verify the ownership of that thing. And to add to that point, it's really interesting what can be done with this. Because with the way the internet and computers work right now, is if I have a file and Mm -hmm. I send it to you, now it's a copy and we both have it. But if I want to get rid of that file forever, 
Well, I can't because I sent it to you. You still have it. You could put it up on a file sharing site and it's all over the world and I've completely lost control of it. But mm-hmm. with a tokenized asset or a digital asset, if this is on a blockchain, like I always have control of that. I can share it with you. I can share it with the whole world. Or if I decide, okay, I don't want anyone to see this anymore and I delete it off my you know, wallet or computer or whatever it is, it disappears everywhere else along with it. Mm-hmm. So it allows people to really maintain control over things, whether it's a blueprint to a building or a picture of your family and you know you guys break up, you don't want to have that picture anymore and then it's gone. Yeah, no, I think that's what's super interesting about when we say what is a tokenized asset and kind of the breadth of this. I mean, we're working with a couple of companies doing super interesting things around, for example, um, putting your identity onto a blockchain. Um, we're working with a couple of gaming companies that are tokenizing um, the assets that you have in a game. Um, we've seen tokenized assets that are kitties, you know, crypto kitties, where that kitty was absolutely unique, almost like a unique photograph or unique piece of art. And that was being traded or trend, the value of which was being transferred on a blockchain. And, you know, it is, the, the potential here is so, you know, we started to see these, these potentials continue to grow. Um, and it, it, I think the beauty of this is that it will touch um, everybody's lives and it will be the backbone of a lot of things that we use today or potentially new things. And we can do a lot more with that. So let's talk a little bit about the institutional investor landscape. So, you know, uh, SeedCX doing a lot of stuff in the institutional crypto market. But before we get into that, what even is an institutional investor? Um, And what is the order in which they will come into the market? And, you know, like who's going to be the first class of investors to adopt? Who's going to be the last class? And Yeah, no, I think that's... I think it's a really interesting question. And we, we work with a lot of institutions, but we also work with institutions that are trying to empower um, retail customers to, to, to access digital assets. Um, so in terms of inst- what people use by institutional, everyone's got a slightly different definition, but I think what most people consider to be institutional is an organization that um, manages money for other people or they're managing their own money, but they are professionally traded. Um, to to get a rate of return from those assets. And in terms of um, the question about the order, um, institutions can range from, you know, a family office that is essentially, you know, some wealthy person's money. Um, It can range to a proprietary trading firm that is, again, a group of people that have come together um, to create a firm to trade money. It can include hedge funds, which is managing outside money. It can include pension funds, um, groups that manage um, your 401k, um, and I think, obviously, these institutions are very, very different, and their risk appetite is also very, very different. Um, so, for example, we've seen a lot of family offices and proprietary, uh, proprietary hedge funds um, or proprietary shops come into the space. The reason being is that if it's one person's money, um, the duty that you have and the risk tolerance um, is much easier to get over. Um, so, you know, in, 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 in finance, you have this concept of a fiduciary responsibility, um, which basically means that if I'm managing somebody else's money, I have a responsibility to them. Um, so it gets a lot more complex as you manage more people's money um, because each of those people have different preferences. And so I think you'll start to see the risk appetite start to change um, as things become uh, clearer and people understand the space a bit more because that's obviously one of the big barriers is the unknown in this space. But what we've started to see is a lot of proprietary head funds come into the space. Um, and you start to see a lot of family offices enter the space. But you haven't seen many pension funds enter the space. And that's all a matter of risk tolerance. 
I had a question I was wondering about. You know, why are institutions and regulations starting to open up for retail? I mean, is this just in the interest of fairness and there's a dawn of a new consciousness? Or have they really schemed up something as a way to drain wealth from the general population? Because we know the game is rigged. Why are they allowing everyone to start playing all of a sudden? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the unique unique, unique industries where actually retail were ahead of institutions a lot of the time. Um, Typically, you know, me and you do not have as, as, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not one of these people that has a huge family office. Um, I, or I don't have a family office at all. I, yeah, I, I can't neither. get access to, yeah, I can't get access to, you know, I can't get access to a lot of real estate and these other pieces. Um, but, in, but people, it was actually the common person, um, you know, most people, you know, it was a retail driven phenomenon um, that actually adopted crypto. It was a people led event. And a lot of these firms are actually, they, you know, relatively late to the game. They weren't the first adopters. And so this is actually, this is actually a retail-driven phenomenon. Um, and now, obviously, institutions are now getting involved. The reason why institutions are getting involved, at least the initial batch, was it's a new market. So there's new opportunities, right? It's just less competitive to make money. Um, but also, um, cryptocurrencies um, historically have been non-correlated which basically, or to a lot of other asset classes, which basically means that if one goes up, um, if it's non-correlated, there's no reason why it will also go up. And today, a lot of things are are correlated together. And the benefit of actually having non-correlated assets in your your portfolio um, is that it essentially diversifies you away. So say that, for example, the the stock market plummets tomorrow. If I have a diverse portfolio, it it means that my net worth isn't hit um, so hard. Um, and so that's why a lot of institutions have got into the space, um, because of the fact that if you were early in the space, you could essentially make uh, money more easily in theory. Um, and then secondly, it's because crypto assets are non-correlated. And so from, a, from what people call a portfolio management perspective, um, you could uh, get, get the benefits of having that in your portfolio. One of the things I like to think about or, or kind of, you know, I wasn't trading during the dot-com boom. I was a little mm-hmm. too young, but, you know, mm-hmm. was that also a retail-driven bubble or was that really something where institutions and everybody got in first? Yeah, I think, you know, with IPOs, for example, that, 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 that's only open to a very select few, right? Um, if you look at the breakdown, I mean, you, we've seen, for example, over the last few years, if you got into an IPO, but even some of the best companies or some of the coolest companies, right? So um, Uber, for example. Um, Uber, the share price of Uber is relatively flat or even down sometimes from where it IPO'd. Um, you look at other companies that have IPO'd, um, you know, um, some of the f- food delivery companies, um, Blue Apron and these other groups. Um, that's when I can get involved, right? That's where you can get involved. Um, the institutions are the groups that get into the private rounds uh, earlier on or they get the pre-IPO, um, we don't have that opportunity. So I think the, the, the beauty of cryptocurrencies is it's, it's much more democratized in the sense of there is a much greater um, equal access to these, to these assets. That's not always the case, right? Especially with new tokenized assets, um, people are creating these concepts of tokens, and sometimes they're given more weight to insiders or to, to certain groups. Um, but by and large, the, a lot of these assets are more accessible than a lot of different parts of the financial system. 
And do you think one of the reasons that all this is kind of happening, I mean, I guess the first reason is that the SEC has mandates to protect the consumer. Um, and so they say that you, only accredited investors can get involved. But like, do you think that those accreditation rules are too um, too restrictive? And has mm. there been any developments uh, in you know the recent months that kind of make um, kind of access to traditional markets um, and accreditation easier? Yeah, so I think that's one of the big things. I always say, right, so the concept of an ICO is pretty toxic now. It's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's not a nice word in crypto. Right, they kind of got a bad rap after the, after the crash. Exactly. And I, I think a lot of that was, um, you know, bad behavior and shows why a lot of the time you've got to protect uh, retail investors. But what I think it also showed was that a lot of people, partly because of what we've just discussed about time to actually get access to assets earlier on, um, to try and get into um, opportunities earlier on. And also very often just a sense of ownership, right? Um, if you're really passionate about something, you want to support it, almost like crowdfunding and the, 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 the rise of crowdfunding. So I think what the ICO phenomenon showed was that a lot of people want to feel that they can get in early into companies um, and that they want to get in early and support things that they are passionate about. Um, and there have been some changes, um, you know, there's been some changes to what, what people use uh, to some of the regulations, such as Reg A and these other things that, you know, it's acronym SUE. But there has been some changes. And actually, the SEC has taken note to potentially raise uh, the, oh, to lower the level of what, what an accredited investor means, one, that's one potential, um, or two, to make it less restrictive as to how companies can raise money from non-accredited investors or the percentage of money from which they raise money from non-accredited investors. So I think that's one of the benefits that you've seen over the last few years is that a lot of people want to get in early. A lot of people are passionate about entering um, these early pieces. And the SEC has started to continue or has continued this progress of potentially changing the rules. Nothing's, nothing's changed yet, but it's definitely on their radar. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, uh, you could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it and not have to risk any of your real money before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at etoro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them, and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. The fact that the chairman of the SEC said himself, you know, under the current laws, he's not an accredited investor, yet you know, be, and no, as pretty much anyone on the staff, mm -hmm. according to the current rules. So he said, you know, I think we have an idea of what a good investment is and isn't. It's time we, we took a look at things. And that's almost a direct quote. So very, very excited for what's to come, especially because, you know, if let's say you, you 
Why are people passionate about these projects in the first place? Is it because of the new tech or the problem they're solving? Or is it because they have explosive potential for growth? Yep. And I think maybe, you know, let's say for sake of arguments, a 50-50 split. The 50% that's in there to make money off this investment opportunity, so much as support a cool project, I think the perception is the only real money is to be made from the private round. And then these investors, whether they're retail or institutional, at IPO time, it's time to dump, take your exit, and move on to the next mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So then the, at, at first offering to the general public, the, they'd suffer tremendous losses and they're stuck holding these heavy bags long term, which if they're passionate and they believe in this project, you know, it's, and the project is actually good, they're going to you know, see profit someday potentially, but it's going to be a long, long time away. Do you think this is really true in general or have just a few you know, recent instances really just left a bad image? What's the real truth from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's not just about people wanting to make money from these from these assets, right? It's not just from the retail investors' perspective. It's also from the company perspective. Imagine how powerful it is that your customers also feel a sense of loyalty that they buy um, some form of ownership in your company. That's pretty cool. If you see the adverts for Robinhood, for example, if you see what, what, how they advertise, it's people want to have a say. People feel passionate about these things. And so you actually can start to actually create a more passionate customer base um, who feel a sense of ownership and loyalty to you through ownership. And I think that's, that's, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's an interesting point about the chairman of the SEC, who probably is so well qualified to, to, to protect them. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So, um, I think what you started to see is that these thresholds of what it means to be an accredited investor, they're pretty arbitrary. And... Wealth doesn't necessarily equate to, um, to to sophistication, right? That's roughly what the accredited investor protections are saying, is that only accredited investors have more money, therefore they are more sophisticated, and they can invest in riskier or less regulated investments because they are more sophisticated and they can protect themselves. That's roughly what it, what it comes down to. I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, rough, it's a rough approximation I think the number needs to be, I think there do need to be some changes because of exactly this point of equality and when you can actually get involved in, in, in certain assets. But, you know, a lot, of, a lot of early companies do fail, right? So you also need to be aware of that, that if you're investing in early companies, most, most of those will fail. But as long as people go in and there's fair disclosures and people actually read the information, um, I think that there's benefits on both the company side and also the investor side. Yeah, and it'd be nice if those disclosures were more human readable. Yeah, you know, I might as well be reading binary for some of these legal documents. So, I mean, that's a problem I'd love to see updated. But what I what I'm really wondering is, you know, are you seeing the same loyalty and passion still from founders and investors at the institutional level, or is it really just about a three to five year plan and then exit for all of them? Yeah, I mean. It's a good question. I mean, I think some people in the space, it depends what investor you're talking about, right? So there's some investors that are fundamental fundamental investors. They do research 
and they, they see the power potential of Ethereum, that you can do things like smart contracts and all of the potential. And those investors are passionate and fundamental driven about what is fundamentally that asset. And then there's obviously some investors that are purely just looking at the numbers and they're kind of high frequency traders or they're just algorithmic traders. There they don't really care about the asset, right? But that's the same as if that trader's trading gold or securities or a particular security. They're not looking at the fundamentals. So they, in a sense, they don't care about what the asset is. Um, I think the difference is, is when, you know, and I don't think people should be, you know, should criticize that potential, that, that, that setup, right? Because investors trade in this just from an algorithmic perspective creates liquidity, which allows me and you to go in and buy whatever amount of Bitcoin or whatever asset pretty quickly and relatively, quick, you know, relatively easily. I think where it does get wrong is where people say, I'm going to own this and I'm trying to, you know, chop the price. You know, that, that, that's, where, that's where bad actors, that's, that, that is wrong. What would you say are like the top level barriers to entry for an, an institutional asset manager? I mean, you know, some people think mm -hmm. that, you know, once the market matures and gets a little bit more liquidity in these assets, that's the main barrier to entry. Um, some people think more robust uh, custody solutions or trading yeah. venues. You, you know, from your perspective, I mean, you're talking to these guys. What is the number one or number two complaint? Yeah. Putting on aside, obviously, the emotional side or the visceral reaction that, you know, I think we've got over that, that Bitcoin and these other assets are just used for drug, you know, drug dealers or, or whatever. I think that's right. That's, that, that's that, that first impression that they're they're no yeah. longer thinking that now we're in a place that these assets are more or less validated. Exactly. The, stig the stigma has gone away. Um, now, whether you think that Bitcoin is going to change the world, that's a separate discussion. But whether Bitcoin exists, it's real. It's, it's actually being used in a system by legitimate people. I think most people are at that point now. And that, that's, you know, that's, that's moved pretty quickly. Two years ago, I would say that, that was probably one of the biggest barriers was this emotional reaction. You'd be laughed at if you raised, uh, raised potentially trading or holding these assets. I think probably, and, and I think these things are going away relatively quickly. I think the biggest thing, and you mentioned it, was custody. Um, and I would put that under the bucket of security. Um, the crypto markets historically have been one of the few places where the operational risk are higher than the market risk, which basically means that you could lose money by simply trading on exchange that went bust, that stole from you, that was hacked. Um, and so most people in institutions will not be fired necessarily for losing money, right? That's, that's understood that sometimes investments go wrong, but you'll be fired when you lose the money i.e. you put money on an exchange or you put money in a wallet that just was not secure. And I think you're start, we're starting to get there. You know, for example, Fidelity, one of the biggest asset managers in the world, now can hold your Bitcoin. And that's pretty huge. So I'd say that we're probably 95 plus percent of the way through that problem set. So what, what's left? And I would probably say it's liquidity in the sense that crypto is still a very small market. And when you're talking about the aggregation of assets, a big pension fund or a big hedge fund, um, it's just not worth it for them to look at assets that are too small because the amount of work that you have to do um, and the amount of, you know, you're allocating tiny fractions of your portfolio to it. It just doesn't make sense. So liquidity is one of the points in the sense of if you, if you want to put on 50, 100, 200 million dollars um, of Bitcoin, which, you know, is a huge amount of money, but relative is, is tiny. 
Um, that's probably the biggest barrier right now is um, just the ability for a big institutional investor to actually get enough exposure to this. If you look at the market cap of all cryptocurrencies today, it's less than the market cap of Apple. And that's the, that, that, that's the reality of it today. Obviously, that's changing and, and this, this is an evolving landscape. But that's probably the biggest issue today. What are some of the macroeconomic factors that are coming to you know, bear on crypto right now? I don't want to use the word bear, you know, yeah. necessarily. But uh, what, what really affects the crypto market outside the crypto market? Are we seeing any kind of correlation at all between anything? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's got a different view on this, right? So what, what's driving the price? Um, I think one of the big things is, is regulation when you, when you see announcements. So, for example, a lot of mining is done in China. When China announces things related to cryptocurrencies, um, that has a big impact because there's a big concentration of mining power um, in, in China. Um, it's been interesting to follow... Um, obviously, the last few weeks have been a tumultuous period from a, a geopolitical standpoint, with uh, you know Iran and these other these other things that are occurring. Um, you know, th- there was an uptick um, to to assets such as gold um, and to Japanese yen um, and to and and Bitcoin. Um, so that's that's been interesting to see. So I think a lot of it is um, driven by um, geopolitical. Um, it is a lot, a lot of it's driven by, um, some of the nuances of the technology, um, that you start to see, for example, things like Bitcoin halving, um, these kind of things. It, it, so it's those, I've put in those three buckets of geopolitical, um, technical points and probably a big bucket of just China. <laughs> Interesting. So, so when somebody's holding, uh, a, an asset like Bitcoin or Ethereum, one of these public blockchain cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. You know, what are they actually holding and kind of frame it in, in, in light of all these geopolitical tensions, you know, are they holding a hedge against inflation or a hedge against political risk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what, um, people, people who, who kind of subscribe to that would, would say, um, I mean, what you're holding is, 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 is a store of value. Um, and it's not controlled by government, um, in the sense that uh, nobody can change um, Bitcoin. Um, it's not like a government can, you know, print more money or print, you know, print, they can't print more Bitcoin like they can print more of the USD. Um, so you start to see in certain parts of the world big devaluation of certain currencies. Um, no one can, no one can stop that with Bitcoin. So it's really a, um, it's a, it's an asset that is not under the control of anybody, and that's what you're, that's what you're holding. Now so that might be in some cases great. Um, but in some cases, that may also introduce different risks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What's a trend that you see unfolding this year in 2020? Is there anything that really sticks out uh, above the rest of the crowd? Um, I mean, there's a lot of technical things going forward. Um, I think one of the interesting trends, or it's going to be a, a, dis- a big discussion point, is um, is how, does Bitcoin continue to dominate um, the digital asset space? So a year ago, Bitcoin as a percentage of the market cap, or a year and so ago, Bitcoin was about 35% of the peak of the ICO bubble. Bitcoin was 35% of the total market cap. It's now close to 70%. So if you look at the crypto space, very often you are just talking about Bitcoin. Um, Does that trend continue? Um, As in, 
does Bitcoin continue to dominate? And there's people called Bitcoin maximalists who believe that, you know, that that, that should be the case. Um, or does it does the space start to evolve more? Do some of these use cases that we spoke about that are really interesting, tokenized identity, tokenized gold, um, you know, does, do the regulators provide enough clarity for tokenized securities? Does that evolve? So I think that's one of the big questions. And I think for the, for the whole ecosystem, that, that's a critical question. Yeah, great answers all around. Um, so kind of in closing, we still have a few questions for you. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious. So like, what were you doing before crypto and, and kind of why did you jump into this space? And then of all the many companies that you could have started, uh, why did you land on Seed CX? Yeah, so uh, so I, previously I, I worked in emerging commodities. Um, that, that, that was my passion, um, what we call fringe commodities, um, things that people don't necessarily look at straight away. So, for example, organics or industrial hemp, which is legal cannabis. I've always, oh, been interested in these, I've always been interested in these kind of fringe things that people either, uh, uh, there's a reason why people don't touch them. Um, and it, very often it's an emotional reaction or sometimes people just don't look closely enough at these, at these assets. So that's what I did before, before that, but where I actually met my co-founder, um, I was at MIT um, and, you know, I was uh, studying, being a good boy. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you've always been a contrarian. Would you think, do you think that being a contrarian, uh, you know, going against the grain or going against the crowd is kind of vital to being a, a good institutional investor or even a good retail yeah. investor? Yeah, I mean, I always say that um, life is not about, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of the game, I don't know if this game translates in the US, um, but snake, snakes and ladders? Yeah, shoots and ladders. Yeah, yeah. shoots and ladders. So I, I always describe life as you can, you can go, you can go, you can, you can just go one, one, one step at a time on a very conventional path. Um, and that's going to take you a really long time um, to get to get to the end or whatever your end is, right? Whatever your objective in life is. Um, but I would much prefer to, to take some ladders in life, but also that sometimes, sometimes comes with snakes, right? Where, where you do fall down. And I think in terms of being an investor or doing anything in life, if you follow the normal path, then there's a lot of people there and it's harder to, 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 to make a difference. It's harder to make money. And so that's that's how I approach life. It's very much kind of that analogy of snakes and ladders. And you know, sometimes you get you get a great ladder, and sometimes you know you, you get that snake. And you know, you've just got to you just got to treat it as part of the journey that you you see for yourself. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot about here is how scarce value is, and if yep. everybody is making money, um, then it's probably a good time to start taking profits, and vice versa. If everybody's losing money and depressed and scared, and there's blood in the streets, everybody lost. <laughs> Their, their house, they were over leveraged, uh, mm -hmm. their, their altcoins are 99% down. That's probably a good time to start buying. Um, and I think yep. we're actually in that point of the market right now where, you know, we've seen so many good friends, you know, wipe out their portfolios and, you know, hear stories on Twitter or Reddit or even just through emails about mm -hmm. people who have, you know, really taken on too much risk, been overexposed and started to, uh, you know, really collapse and mm -hmm. become insolvent and stuff. So that is when we're, we're seeing good times to buy and it's contrarian. Everybody's losing money and has lost money. Now it's a good time to start buying. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's a really, really important point that we can never overestimate mm -hmm. or understate either. So, you know, I'm also curious about what your name means, Seed CX. How'd you land on that? Yeah. Um, so it's basically um, a 
because because crypto is so broad, uh, and it was relates to your first question about what do we mean by digital asset? It can mean anything, and so essentially the the name seed came from um, emerging markets before they become fully fledged markets. That's when we want to get involved with these assets. Obviously, we see blockchain as a power as a building block, um, but we're agnostic to whether that be a Bitcoin or tokenized gold or, or Ethereum or something that hasn't even been created yet. That's really cool. I like it a lot. Um, just one last question before I guess we let you go. We all ask this to all of our guests, and it's so fascinating because we get different answers all the mm-hmm. time. Who's the one person that you admire in the crypto space that inspires you to do what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some really, there's some really interesting people in the crypto space. Um, I think somebody that I really find very interesting and his political thoughts on this and he, he is a um, true believer in digital assets, but, uh, but in Bitcoin, uh, and Bitcoin in particular, um, is Jeff Wernick. Um, super, super interesting guy. And he just has a lot of interesting thoughts on how wealth is distributed. Um, and he's, he's written a lot on this. Um, and this is somebody who has made incredible amounts of money, um, but he's very contrarian. Um, for example, I just went to see him talk the other day in New York. Um, and he says he holds, you know, no, no, really very little fiat cash. Most of his wealth is in uh, Bitcoin and gold. I think that's somebody who's really, really interested in it. And it's somebody to be admired because he does stick his head above the parapet. The second person is um, Yoni from eToro that you might be familiar with, um, the stock trading platform. Um, he moved a pretty traditional um, platform into cryptocurrencies really early on. Again, somebody who went against some of the advice of his board, um, just a really interesting guy. And he's, he's not only got his company into cryptocurrencies, he's somebody who spends a lot of time with other founders, but he also, um, you know, actually puts his money where his mouth is. So he's funded things pretty early on. And actually, um, he, he did a podcast, um, recently, um, where he actually spoke about, he actually gave, um, Vitalik uh, from, from Ethereum, um, some of his first, first money, um, and he tried to get Vitalik to be a consultant on a project he was working on. So super, super interesting guy who was in crypto really, really early and has pushed it along in a number of ways. Brilliant. So the first gentleman you mentioned, his name is Jeff Warnick? Yeah, W-E-R-N-I-C-K. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, we'll have to do some research on him. Sounds like an interesting character. And what, what was the company he was with? He's just himself. He's just... Uh, oh. Somebody who has, has made a lot of money by himself and has made a lot of money off Bitcoin and, and is a really good thought leader, I think, in the space. Brilliant. Well, uh, maybe we'll bring him on the show one time soon. Yeah, he, he would make for a great podcast. <laughs> Edward, uh, we had so much fun with you today. Thank you for spending uh, 45 minutes here on Crypto 101 today. We wish you all the best with SeedCX and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Crypt Nation, just a friendly neighborhood reminder to go to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free conference pass to the online summit, Crypto 2020 Summit. We got 60 speakers who are giving their bold predictions for prices and bold predictions for uh, technological developments in this crazy crypto space. So if you want to be the first to know the big news and you want to make sure that you're in touch and in tune, go to crypto2020summit.com right now and register for free.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.